Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. Today, uh, we've got two reporters talking about two different stories. One will be by Chuck Stanley. He will be talking about New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the MTA, which has seen its various revenue streams eviscerated by the new coronavirus outbreak. But bondholders tell Chuck that the essential nature of the authority services to the New York City region make it too important to fail, even for a state that of New York that is itself is stretched to limits by the crisis. Our second story will be about um, a quarterly hospital watch, which is reported by Simone Barabo. And she will mention how Massachusetts hospitals are showing risk factors for the COVID-19 related financial distress. And the analysis will look at pre-pandemic operating results. So again, that's Simone Barabo talking about our this, the last quarter's hospital watch report. All right, Chuck Stanley in the nation's capital of Washington, DC. Chuck, how are you? I'm doing well, how about yourself? Not too bad. So today, Chuck is going to be talking about the New York, New York State's Metropolitan Transportation, Transportation Authority, the MTA, and whether the New York City region's dependence on its services make it too big to fail. So Chuck, tell, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening at the MTA, especially with the timing this week that I think yesterday, a lot of phase one started back in New York City and why some investors are having this discussion over, over whether it's too big to fail. Sure. Yeah, I mean, as, as you kind of suggested, the MTA has taken a major hit to its bottom line from this coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, the city's just now opening up after ordering non-essential businesses closed in March when the number of cases in the city really first began to skyrocket. And with businesses closed and many people working from home, that's meant a dramatic decline in bus and subway ridership and an even steeper decline with the authority's commuter rail lines with a corresponding drop in revenue. The virus effect on the broader economy is also bitten into the authority's revenues from sales taxes and taxes on uh, taxi and ride-sharing services in the city. So altogether, the MTA expects it will need about $10 billion in federal assistance to replace lost revenue through 2021. And if the federal government doesn't come through with that money, it raises the question of how long the MTA can rely on either borrowing or reassigning funds from its capital program to maintain operations, especially if ridership doesn't recover as rapidly as the authority hopes. Well, that sounds pretty dire, I would think. And and wasn't the MTA in great shape financially before coming into this crisis? That's right. When the pandemic came to New York, the MTA was already in the middle of a major overhaul of its management structure that was instigated in part by uh, growing operating deficits that were projected to reach a billion dollars annually as soon as 2022. Uh, part of that was due to ridership declines that were pretty modest compared to what we've been seeing in the pandemic. You know, it was uh, 2% in successive years for sub subways and closer to 5% during that same time for buses. The authority also has tens of billions of dollars in unfunded capital needs, including backlog maintenance that resulted in some high-profile service problems. So now the system is a long climb back just to get to the really challenging position it was in before all this started. Ridership during the height of the pandemic has been down around 90% from budget projections. And the recovery is probably going to be slower than in other sectors. 
absent a miracle cure or a widespread vaccination, I think people are going to think twice about getting on a crowded bus or subway, much more so than eating on a restaurant patio or even shopping indoors. So that leads to the question about a permanent decline in ridership. Because as people adjust their lives to cut out transit and rail trips, some of those changes are going to be easier to leave in place than going back to the old normal. So maybe the commuter from Westchester County starts coming back to the office in Manhattan, but only two or three days a week. Or the person living in Brooklyn that buys a bike to avoid the bus during the pandemic keeps cycling for shorter trips once things get back to normal. That's all going to lead to long-term revenue declines for the MTA. Yes, and I think you're right about that. And you were mentioning about how commuting commuting will definitely change. I mean, I, for example, live in New Jersey but work in New York. I don't take the uh, the subway because I could walk from Port Authority to the office. However, I could see easily if I did, I would come in like you said every other day during the week or whatever, and that could be permanent. So that's an interesting um, point there. Um, so. But all of that would definitely seem like to spell trouble for the MTA. What are, so what are the bondholders saying? Well, they certainly don't discount the headwinds facing the authority. They see the MTA drowning in red ink, and they're well aware of the problems that predate this crisis. But they tend to say a lot of the same things that they did when the MTA was struggling with those myriad issues that plagued the system before the COVID crisis. And that basically boils down to New York City's economy is essential to the health of the state and the regional economy, and the city can't run without subway and commuter rail service. So as long as New York State is solvent, it will do whatever it takes to keep the MTA in business. And that's the case even if some riders don't come back. The region's just too crowded for everybody to drive into the city every day. Now, keeping the trains running doesn't necessarily preclude restructuring its debt or trying to get some bondholders to take a haircut if it's really facing, you know, financial trouble. But the people I spoke with say that the system's major capital needs make it really dependent on market access. So if the state's intent on maintaining service, it's also going to have to protect the authority's access to debt. And that means continuing to pay its obligations. That's right. And it sounds like it's a domino effect. Without the subways, the MTA, New York City city falters. And then if New York City falters, the state as a whole will definitely um, suffer. But that's interesting. So, Chuck, I got one right. last question for you. Um, you noted in your piece that the state is probably short on resources too, though. Isn't that correct? Right. So, you know, you you mentioned the domino effect where New York State could really face even bigger problems than it's facing now if the transit system in the city shuts down and therefore the city's economy really can't bounce back. But New York isn't in a position where it's uh, – it's already going to be adjusting its budget throughout the year to account for this major uncertainty regarding the effect of the COVID-19 crisis. But even if the state isn't in a position to give the MTA an infusion of cash, it does have other tools to make sure the authority has access to the money it needs to meet its obligations, either through its taxing authority or offering some surety for its debt to keep credit flowing. Uh, Just last week, the state gave the MTA permission to tap the Federal Reserve's municipal liquidity facility, which was just recently opened to municipal agencies. And right now, that faith in sort of the the essential nature of the MTA seems to be keeping investors comfortable. In May, the MTA went to the market to issue a little more than $600 million in debt, and it wound up oversubscribed to the tune of around $250 million. Very interesting. Well, 
got to keep the bondholders happy. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Chuck, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And uh, stay safe down there. Thanks, John. Have a good one. You too. Good morning, Simone Barabo in Miami, Florida. How are you? Doing well today. How are you? All right. Uh, I'm glad you're okay. And welcome back to the show. Thank you. All right. So uh, you cover hospitals and you produced a quarterly hospital watch, which came out last week. And it looks like it must have been a very interesting quarter. Yes. So the financial results were for the period ending December 31st, so ending 2019. So basically, we could look to see how all hospitals were set up to deal with this sort of challenge with the hindsight of knowing where the coronavirus hit hardest over the past three months. And at this point, this is probably obvious, but I should say the coronavirus is really, really bad for hospitals because hospitals in many parts of the country are getting patients with the coronavirus that they wouldn't otherwise had. And there's some revenue there, of course, but they're also losing a lot of revenue from other places. For a while across much of the country, elective surgeries were prohibited. And elective surgeries are wide-ranging things. They're not just cosmetic procedures, which make up a small portion of them, but also things like knee and hip replacement surgeries, some exploratory surgeries for when doctors can't tell what's wrong with someone, bariatric surgeries, some cardiac surgeries. So this is a lot of hospitals' business. And it also hit doctors and emergency room visits. And as an example, I'm pregnant, and my doctor told me at like 10 p.m. one night that a strong <laughs> recommendation yeah, was that I go to the emergency room for a sonogram. And I'm the type of person who, when not confronted with a pandemic, wouldn't think twice about doing that. And when she told me this, I was like, yeah, hard pass. And I waited until the next day and went to the doctor's office, and everything was fine. But thousands and thousands of people like me are making the same decisions and stripping emergency rooms of their revenue. Well, wow. well, first of all, congratulations, Simone. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, you're, like you said, I think a lot of people are because they what they would normally do, they wouldn't because of the pandemic. But let's go back to the uh, hospital watch. So let me ask you, what, uh, that's what the word I'm looking for. What other factors did you look at when determining if, let's say, a hospital was well prepared for the coronavirus? So the first thing we looked at was the percent of inpatient visits to total visits. What we were trying to see was how vulnerable a hospital was to foregoing revenue when elective surgeries were barred or when people were unwilling to go to the emergency room. For a host of reasons, this is an imperfect indicator, but it's the best we had that was widely reported across most hospitals. We also looked at debt to revenue and operating margin changes. Obviously, high debt to revenue isn't as good as low debt to revenue. And you wouldn't want a hospital's operating margins to be deteriorating before the full mess started. And we looked at the number of coronavirus deaths per capita. So this is also not a perfect indicator for a number of reasons. States report coronavirus deaths differently. And even if they didn't, depending on demographics, that might not correlate to hospitalizations. That wasn't a number we had. And also public policy and pe people's choices in terms of the coronavirus might not directly correlate to the number of deaths. 
And the bigger issue is that the number of deaths that there have been so far doesn't necessarily represent how long restrictions will stay in place. There are plenty of places, Arizona, Florida, where I live, Puerto Rico, North Carolina, where cases are now rising. And some of these places, the number of new cases are exceeding their prior peak. So if restrictions have been loosened in these areas, they might tighten up again and elective surgeries might again be barred. Hmm. Now, are there areas where medical-related coronavirus restrictions are tightening rather than loosening right now? Not to my knowledge, but there are definitely areas where you could see it happening. In Arizona, for instance, intensive care units at the largest health system are close to fully occupied after a spike there. In Texas, I saw this morning that they were experiencing new record levels of hospitalizations. So the question is, will they go back to barring elective procedures? And your guess is as good as mine. In Arizona and Texas, they have Republican governors. And I think Republicans have been pretty clear that they're moving to reopen faster than Democrats. But in all states, things were only able to get so bad before, regardless of party, until governors acted. And this is a little bit of a side note, but there was an earnings call for Phoenix Children's Hospitals, which is as you may have guessed, the Children's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. And the CFO was talking about how the number of surgeries and emergency room visits were improving in May from a low in April. And a bondholder essentially asked why there was such trouble getting back to normal, because kids really haven't been very affected by the coronavirus. And having a child, that concept made me laugh a bit, because you hear it a lot with everyone from politicians to Dr. Oz arguing to reopen schools. And every time I hear someone say that, I picture sort of Lord of the Flies situation where kids <laughs> go to an adultless school or in this case go by themselves to an adult-free hospital, I guess like Doogie Howser's performing the surgery. <laughs> and then afterwards, they live in some sort of like Lord of the Flies quarantine so they don't infect their parents, some of whom may have conditions that make the coronavirus more dangerous. I mean, a lot of people are still trying to avoid the coronavirus. And I don't want to generalize, but I'm going to, there's no parent who has ever existed that has sent a child to daycare who hasn't gotten sick from something their kid picked up in the daycare. <laughs> the parents are going to be cautious about this. And, you know, to be fair, it's not yet clear how effective children are as vectors for this particular disease. So it may turn out that the risk of your kid giving you the new coronavirus is low. But since it's still an unknown, there are going to be people who try to keep their kids out of hospitals. Because even if a kid stays healthy, if in a dire scenario they give the disease to their parent and their parent dies, you know, orphaning a kid isn't good for kids either. So that was a bit of a segue. But the point is hospitals and other sectors as well have these secondary issues, which makes it hard to tell where and how bad the hurt is going to be. Interesting. Well, I think you just sort of uh... – Maybe you, you have a new catchphrase for the fall, Lord of the Flies. I mean, just, if there's a second wave, we have to be careful. So, especially with schools. I tell you, there are some days where I'm like, oh, Lord of the Flies situation would be a good thing for my three-year-old. Anyway. anyway um, so another question is, so tell me, someone. so what hospitals did you find to be most at risk in your uh, hospital watch report? So looking at the areas hardest hit by COVID, half of the hospitals that had other factors other risk factors were in Massachusetts. So you had this confluence of a high degree of COVID plus really integrated hospitals, hospitals meaning hospitals that had 
lots of doctor's offices combined with them. So they really stood to lose a lot. One of these, Boston Medical Center, also had a declining operating margin. So that's just a bad confluence of things. But in Massachusetts, unlike some other states, it looks like the worst may be passed. And if that's true, these hospitals may have had a bad few months and then end up somewhat spared. And the other thing I should mention is that, by and large, hospitals now are eligible for a lot of federal financial aid. And some of this money is grants to make up for lost revenue. So that, of course, is, is a, undeniably a win for hospitals. But hospitals are also receiving advanced payments from Medicare. And at some point, absent changes to federal law, it's going to come time to pay the piper on that. So you could see there being a delay in hospitals' financial well-being and then a reckoning. Very interesting. Well, Simone was a great, uh, very well-done report. The only thing I, was, I, I found interesting about your report, and you alluded to earlier about how some of the metrics you use, like, for example, uh, few, if any, hospitals divide out elective from non-elective procedures in their statements. And also, I think something about uh, inpatient, outpatient. Do you want to just briefly mention that? Yeah. So, you know, the percent of inpatient visits to total visits, it's a really imperfect measure. It's not one I've ever seen really used anywhere before. We, we just kind of made it up. And what would have been better would have been to have, well, firstly, what you mentioned, just the number of elective procedures compared to the number of, of overall procedures. I haven't seen any hospital break that out. I, I, I'm not sure that there is really any hospital in the country that does that. Um, Alternatively, you could do inpatient versus outpatient revenue because, you know, an outpatient visit, that could be, you know, anything really. It could, and it right. could have a huge amount, of, you know, if you're looking, if an outpatient visit is counted as an outpatient surgery, that's a lot of revenue. If it's just a general, you know, well patient doctor's appointment, that's going to be a lot less revenue for the hospital. So, um, you know, this metric, the, 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 some hospitals do break out inpatient versus outpatient revenue, but not, a, not enough of them did to make us be able to use that as, as the metric. So, you know, it, this was just kind of what we had as imperfect as it, as it is. Interesting. Well, Simone, again, thank you for your time today. Uh, good luck with the baby. Congratulations again. Hope, uh, you know, Things work out well, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. And that is our show for today. Uh, thanks to my uh, guests, Chuck Stanley in Washington, D.C., Simone Barabo in Miami, Florida, and to our producer, Christian Ayala. And as always, thanks to your listeners out there. Please come back week after week to find out the latest on distressed mini debt on the mini lowdown. Hopefully, uh, well, you'll tune in again soon next time. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Mini Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.